0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good morning. Thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles really difficult topics sometimes, and one of those topics is for today's show. We are talking about incest, not just about what it is but we're talking about a historical perspective about it. And I know it's a tough topic. I know that it is a tough topic. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to acknowledge it. But you know what? It's here. And I think looking at it from this really, really interesting historical perspective that our guest has will not only enlighten us about the past histories, but it's also going to give us a perspective on how we're doing today dealing with this topic because like it or not, it's here. Lynn Sacco, thank you for joining us very, very much for I, I appreciate your being here.
2: Hi Heather. Thanks for having me.
1: You are welcome for, for being here. And and I've got to give a little introduction, you know, I mean, you have such a rich history that it's tough for me to include everything. It was tough for me to include everything in uh um, I've been the, alive uh, a while. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I'm I'm getting a little <laughs> long on the tooth myself here, and it's amazing because, you know, I, sometimes I work with young people, and they go, oh, you know, I mean, they just act like I know everything, and I think, no, you just hang around long enough. You absorb it, okay, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you sit in the salt water long enough, and pretty soon you start tasting like salt. You know, what can I tell you? Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Sacco, thank you so much for being here. Should I call you Dr. Sacco, Professor Sacco, or Lynn? Uh,
2: just call me Lynn, please.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, you uh, came out with a book that is an amazing, amazing book. Um, and you know what? I'm not going to read all of your, your curriculum vitae stuff here. Uh, suffice it to say that you have an extensive education. You practiced as an attorney for many years. Then you went back um, and got your Ph.D. in history, I believe. Yes. What brought you to the area of incest what made you interested in this
2: well i went back i went to graduate school when i was 40 years old and uh i'd already been a lawyer for 15 years and a lot of that time i focused on divorce So i heard a lot of personal stories i was also involved in a lot of feminism and um, in law school for instance it was um, very difficult there were almost no women there Uh, Very difficult. So hardly any women lawyers when I started practicing. I thought I'd go to graduate school then. I went to a women's studies program at SUNY Buffalo and thought I would study, you know, how gender works in court. What I saw, though, walking in the library was constantly these articles that really shocked me. And what happened was there was a backlash at the time, and this was in the mid-'90s, against Uh, say women, 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, who were suddenly claiming that they had histories of incest in their lives, and specifically their fathers had molested them, usually for years. These stories had been made public starting in the mid-1980s, and they were received in sort of you know the language of before the internet. Oh my gosh, the last taboo is broken. Now we're talking about this quote conspiracy of silence about incest. So we did start to speak speak about it, and then suddenly there was this backlash. That's what really got my attention. This backlash, because I thought, wow, look at the terms. Now, when was using. this
1: backlash?
2: This was around uh, ninety five, ninety six.
1: Okay, and.
2: It was in places like the uh, New York Review of Books and uh, there was a piece in the uh, New York Times and they were comparing women who claimed their fathers had uh, assaulted them to people who claimed they'd been taken up in UFOs. Um,
1: uh-huh.
2: And they they started to talk about these women being so eager to become victims because women wanted to be victims because that's what feminists taught them, and therefore they eagerly blamed their families for all all of their problems. Now, that was a convoluted sentence, but it reflects the convoluted thinking of these people. And I was stunned that uh, sort of, you know, right after second wave feminism had taken off, women were being discussed this way in the media by men and women. Um, and I decided to study that. That's okay. how this topic got my attention. And now, that was
1: right about the same time that all of the uh, recovered memories business was going on, was it not? Yes. It was um,
2: in the same general era as the nursery school prosecutions, um, as uh, um, um, there was a Miss America that stepped forward, Oprah did a big show. So this was all on TV quite a bit. And then the recovered memory idea, though, was part of the biggest and most important and well-organized response. That term is fabricated and it is um, not a term anyone will find somewhere like in the uh, uh, diagnostic manual. Um, It was fabricated as a way to um, marginalize women who made these claims by suggesting that therapists using unethical and uh, unheard of uh, and inappropriate practices um had sort of induced these false memories into women and again, the idea you know how could this happen right and the yeah. idea is that women are so susceptible first of all that 's a very old canard against women, and secondly, that they are so eager to take on this quote victim identity that that all these therapists uh were easily able to do this. Now, Heather, let's stop for one second, okay? Anyone who's gone to therapy because they were depressed, say, over a breakup or the death of a loved one, you would wish your therapist could sort of have this magical power to put different thoughts in your head, right? And make you feel <laughs> yeah. better. Of but, course. You know, as as even Woody Allen has demonstrated for years, it doesn't work that way. So... um <laughs> There there's really no evidence. There's a, a few people I mean there there are there are uh psychologists and, and psychiatrists at important um universities all over the country. I don't wanna make it sound like it's a bunch of cranks who made this up. But they did not let I would say, uh, it would be fair to say they just um, many of them Made their reputations and their fortunes, uh, being expert witnesses and testifying in these matters.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, because um, a lot, of, a lot of those recovered memory stuff, and and even some of those prosecutions were overturned later on, and you know, discredited. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that these legitimate claims that women have had of experiencing incest were not. True. Well, and well yes, that's they right. And lumped into the same thing.
2: That's right. And the people that advocated this uh, false memory or recovered memory idea, the way they used it was to then conclude that every single narrative was um, highly suspicious, whether the woman remembered it in a hypnotic uh, therapy session or whether she had never. Uh, claimed never to have forgotten it and had always had this memory. Um, and so they were very effective that way. And then what happened is suspicion got cast on everybody. Um, and then there's like, well, how will, you know, just like a uh, a rape, any type of rape allegation, it became a he, he said, she said, with really vicious attacks on the entire profession, uh, psychological professions. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the reason I looked elsewhere. And I thought, okay, it looks like a stalemate. How do we know how do we know what's going on here? You know, and then particularly it, the allegations that upset people the most were the idea that these weren't it's not stranger danger that we have to protect our children from. It's ordinary and seemingly otherwise good and respectable family men. That's pretty frightening, isn't it?
1: Well yes, because the boogeyman doesn't yeah. I mean you know, you you can't look at him and go, ooh, he's creepy. He's a danger. You know, he's Uncle That's Joe. That's right.
2: He's Uncle Joe. He's your husband. He's he's your uh, brother. He's the ne- neighbor next door. You don't know. Uh yeah. So this, you know, this makes it something that not only do people want to not talk about, you don't want to think about it. Um, and if you think about the status of women, it's even harder. You know, most women don't have the option to just up and leave uh, with their family or or to find some sort of meaningful protection or even a way to understand if they suspect that um, their husband or a man they know is abusing a child. It's it's a very complicated uh, situation because society, uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, We may know what to do, but protecting children is not something we're great at.
1: In general. Well, it seems to me, oh, you know what? I'm negligent here. I want to toss out our phone number. We can take some call, phone calls, and I also have the chat room open, and I see we have a couple guests in the chat room already. If you have questions or comments, you don't want to say them on the air, that's fine. Just type them in there, and I will ask them or present them to Lynn. Um, but if you'd like to call in, we'd love to, to talk with you, and the phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646 646- Three seven eight zero four three zero, 378-0430, and please feel free to join this conversation. It's an important one. You know, um, Lynn, when we started out this show, I I mentioned our Facebook page, and usually there's comments and there's a bunch of likes for every topic when I post the the little blurb about what's coming up on the show. This week, nothing. No likes, no comments, no shares, Mm -hmm. nothing. Hmm. Does that surprise you?
2: It's no.
1: um,
2: Sadly, um, I mean, you know, one of the problems I had writing my book was um, how do I present? How how can I present this material, which is just not only difficult to think about, but angering. um, This it can produce feelings of revulsion. Uh, frustration uh, if it's been your experience uh, you know it's it's, it's even more difficult so I understand that and just talking about these issues is not enough though either because you know like I pointed out sometimes you can raise awareness of something and then it just gets batted down or now now we raise awareness of something new every week so that's You know, so we really have to think about how to approach this. And I was, frankly, tired and exhausted by the battle over this issue in the 1980s and 90s. Um, And one reason I wrote the book and did this research was I wanted to think of, are there other ways we can talk about this issue to try to get better information, more information, or even some information we could all agree on that might help us do – you know, find some approaches and figure out how to protect children, if need be. Um, And so I thought, let's look out of the psychological literature, because whatever value one might feel it does or doesn't have, it has not helped us as a society um, really move closer to understanding this issue and and figuring a way uh, to resolve it.
1: Okay. Well, let's, let's kind of back up a little bit and talk specifically about what you found in the book. Uh, the name of the mm-hmm. book, by the way, is Unspeakable, Father-Daughter Incest in American History. And um, a great title. Uh, uh, I, I just, you know, I mean, it's absolutely a uh, spot-on title. So what did you find in your research for the book? What is the history of how we in America have treated incest and reports of incest?
2: Well, I did two things in the book. One, I documented that father-daughter incest has occurred throughout American history, That is that it has occurred in all groups in society, uh, among all types of families, and that it has in some periods been reported as father-daughter incest, and in other times it's been ignored or it's been redefined. And so that's one reason. I'm trying to think, why is it that we have this confusion? So that's one thing I found that it was there. The second thing I found was trying to figure out why don't we know it's there all the time or why is there all this uncertainty? Um, and why frequently uh, have we just denied its existence? And so i um looked through newspapers, I went to all kinds of archives, I looked at trial records, uh, trial transcripts, I looked at social work records, uh, doctors and nurses records, both their medical hospital records, and I looked at their personal journals, um, educational materials, and I found something really troubling. I found that Around the turn of the 20th century, doctors in America discovered what they called an epidemic of gonorrhea among little girls. And by little, they meant girls basically mostly between the ages of 5 and 9. Hey. And the gonorrhea which was vaginal. Doctors had long understood gonorrhea as a sexually transmitted disease, they included it in the category of venereal disease, which they felt was a an infection caused by extramarital sex, immoral sex. And toward the end of the nineteenth century, doctors were starting to understand the science of bacteria. Uh, how to use a microscope, what to look for, but um, in medicine as we understand it today uh, was was not, I wouldn't even say it's in a rudimentary state at this point in America, very very basic. Um, so once doctors some some of this new technology comes out, doctors think they'll use it um, to sort of get a better handle on why so many children are ill. When they start testing girls though for these vaginal discharges they're stunned to find that these girls are testing positive for gonorrhea. And the doctors cannot they can't explain it and they can't accept it because they understand vaginal gonorrhea in girls as a sexually transmitted disease. Many so of So they the girls, knew that.
1: They knew that it was sexually transmitted. They knew trans-
2: that. They knew that. What would happen was if a girl who claimed she, uh, she had been sexually assaulted by a man, if the man was arrested, if the doctors would examine both of them, if a girl had a discharge and the man appeared to be infected with gonorrhea, a doctor could then testify that they were both infected at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean he infected her. She could have been infected before. Somebody else could have infected her. Okay. But it is another piece of the state's case to affirm the girl's testimony. So they knew this, just like pregnancy could be, Um, and violent signs. Well, doctors had a few reasons to doubt this could be gonorrhea. One, all the science and the technology were very new and rudimentary. So they were concerned about uh, poor results. Secondly, most of the girls they examined did not suffer from severe physical injuries. Doctors expected and assumed that men were inserting their penis, which would have seriously injured the girls. Um, The doctors knew, however, that men often rubbed themselves and did not attempt penetration, but they refused to consider this possibility as an explanation for why the girls were infected. And the third reason was because the girls' fathers were, as the doctors said, uh, respectable men, meaning white males, um, whom we would understand in the middle and upper classes now. Uh, And the doctors simply couldn't suspect them of such poor conduct. Because they said, how could this many girls be? In fact, can't be that so many otherwise good men have done this. Mm-hmm.
1: So there has to be another explanation for this.
2: There has to be another explanation. Now, you know, when you, when you think of it that way, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But the doctors had some other facts, too, unfortunately. Many of the girls were brought to see the doctor by their fathers, and the fathers reported to the doctors, one, that they already had gonorrhea, and two, that they shared a bed with the girl. <laughs> so, oh. that, so they admitted being infected and that their daughter shared the bed with them. All right? But still, the doctor never, never suspected and never asked, if there was any sexual contact, instead doctors started to claim that it could be possible that the germs sort of crawled across the sheets
1: in the night. Of course they did. Of course. Of course. Why didn't we think of that?
2: Yes. I know. I know. Now, somehow, this is only being transmitted in this fashion, all right? If boys had gonorrhea, uh, they could have it in the rectum. Both boys and girls could have rectal gonorrhea. They could also have it in their throat. But when boys displayed infection, doctors always assumed there had been a sexual contact. With girls, they started to look for alternatives to sexual contacts like this tripping along the sheets. Then they moved to girls' share underwear, and so they, you know, passed the discharge to each other. For a while, they suggested mother's fingers, you know, bathing and taking care of children, even though that would mostly apply to infants and toddlers, and these were girls five to nine, but they still said, blame it on mothers. Um, And then they blamed it on uh, toilet seats at school, which were really (laughs) the perfect culprit because it's a public place, you can't, there's, you know, it's not a male environment, and then they just said the girls passed it on to each other.
1: Oh. Okay. So it's yeah. our fault. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know,
2: but, but it goes from the toilet to the mom, Heather. Mothers never yeah. get off, because then the girl has to be treated, and the treatment was a nightmare, and, you know, it was ineffective. Um and the girls hated it. But the girl was supposed to be isolated, even at home. And she was supposed to even have her own plate and fork and spoon, that sort of thing. And that just wasn't going to happen at that time, and particularly among working class people crowded in terrible apartments. Um, and so mothers were blamed that their daughters were infected. They were, they were then blamed that the, um, the mother should have cleaned the toilets better, if any, at home. She should have supervised the school. She should, you know, it was all her fault.
1: Yeah. Well, it always is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then when
2: the social workers get involved, then they start to explain to mothers. Because mothers actually, you know what, they're a lot smarter, and so how did most of these girls come to, the, to see a doctor or make an accusation in the first place is their mothers took them, and they, they called the police. So the mothers knew. Everybody understood this was a sexually transmitted disease until the medical profession took hold of this issue and began insisting that it was not sexually transmitted to girls. That was an exception. Even though in New York City, They said it was the second most contagious children's disease next
1: to me. Oh, my God.
2: Communicable, yeah.
1: Why on earth? I mean, I don't know if you can even answer this question, but it would seem to me that if they accepted the fact that it was sexually transmitted with the little boys, why Mm -hmm. would they think there would be something about the little girls that would make it different?
2: Because um, really just because they didn't want to believe it. Um, What I found was they often cited... there's almost no research. That's the other thing. The second biggest disease, but nobody did any studies on it, all right? And most doctors would report that parents just said, "Caught." they'd say, how did your girl get this? I have no idea. And they would write that down. Or they would give an address, supposedly of a bathroom. And in the 30s, there were some committee members who checked this stuff out and there'd be like no building at the address, that sort of thing. But doctors just said, It can't be rape because these are people from respectable families, so it must have been acquired uh, from uh, non-sexual ways, which they called it fomite, F-O-M-I-T-E. That means contact with an object or material. Oh, okay. Now, that's very difficult for gonorrhea. Right. Actually, that's why those white papers... Uh, sheets are in public toilets still today um, because they said, let's put those in because supposedly then if there's a discharge uh, between girls, the next girl to sit down won't get it. And the other thing they did was they, in all public toilets, they put what they call a U-shaped toilet seat because these near pornographic descriptions doctors wrote of how girls, Get infect each other would say a little girl has trouble sitting on the toilet so she has to kind of pull herself up in the process she smears this discharge on the seat and then the next girl comes in and she uh does the same thing and acquires it and so the remedy there was so not only are we blaming the, the mothers are blaming daughter. the
1: children themselves yeah
2: right right so you know, if you, you probably don't notice this, Heather, but this is the kind of thing I looked at as a graduate student. At home, there are O-shaped, meaning there's no, you know, there's solid uh, yes. whole, uh, O or oval toilet seats, but not in public. It's a U. It's cut out in front. That's the biggest thing they did to protect girls. That's the And they
1: we're still doing it today, Yeah, Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't until the,
2: you know, World War II that penicillin is, Invented and becomes available. And so after World War II, they just start giving girls a shot, and any interest among doctors, you know, faded um, until the 1970s when STDs became rampant and then feminism, and people started asking questions again. Different doctors asked different questions. But before that, the uh, healthcare profession had started to educate women. Um, and to explain to mothers, they were really frustrated that the mother just wouldn't believe them, that it's from a dirty toilet seat, not a man. and The mothers are frantic. And so they basically tell the mothers, look, get on board with this, or we're going to take your children from you. And they had some homes for girls that some of them were in existing homes that we think of as homes for unwed mothers or girls reformatories, um, there were some Catholic homes across the country, and these institutions would take some of these girls in uh, in los angeles they were They were put into the um, juvenile hall oh
1: my God for their
2: own protection right um, It was a system to based protect on them from
1: mom, not daddy who 's diddling her
2: right exactly, and to protect yeah. the family from her infecting them.
1: So she uh, becomes
2: yeah. the toxic little predator.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah. It's 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 akin uh. to the way we talked about children with HIV AIDS. Uh, not we, but the worst of us. Uh, I'm thinking yeah. of Ryan White. The idea that this little boy is going to intentionally spit and bite on people and transmit this disease. That's exactly the way they talked about these little girls. And, in fact, um, the, one of the major figures in medical social work called them menace, uh, menaces to society.
1: Oh my God. And we're talking, yeah. again, five to nine year old girls That's primarily? Right.
2: That's right. Menaces to society.
1: <laughs> oh. oh, that breaks my it's heart. Just a terrible it just breaks story, my heart. Yeah.
2: Oh. Yeah. Now, uh, fortunately, most girls, when they reach puberty, if they're infected before puberty, um, they spontaneously the, the infections went away with the onset of puberty. Um, but but after that, in, uh, infections that lingered could uh, they that gonorrhea complications from untreated gonorrhea infection um, is what can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease. So there were women who would become infected on the first night of their marriage. Uh, They had saved themselves. Their husbands had not. And they would acquire a gonorrhea infection. They might have one child. They might miscarry uh, completely. And or they might have pelvic inflammatory disease, which led to sterilization. So this was a well-known problem among female doctors and nurses, nearly part of the 20th century. But because of doctors' interpretation of medical ethics, they felt that if if the husband first reported that he was infected, they could not tell the wife the cause of her infection because that would break the confidence with the husband. The wife was told, right, she had a hysterectomy to solve the problem she was told she had an appendicitis. Uh, uh, her appendix removed.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: Right. Oh my gosh! And then, gosh. in many cases, the husband would then divorce her because now she couldn't bear his children.
1: Ah. Oh. oh. This is yeah. <laughs> this is not a cheery history. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, we have no. a caller, Lynn. Let's go to our caller. Sure. Caller, are you there? Caller, are you there? Um,
0: this is Eileen
1: King. Oh, I'm hi, Eileen. Eileen, welcome to the show. <laughs> hi. <laughs>
0: oh, hi. Hey, I'm, I'm, Eileen, you're going to
2: ask expert.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just so glad to hear Lynn talk about this issue because it's one of the sort of root uh, causes or, or ways to understand, you know, where we are now and um, And how difficult it is to to kind of pull back the curtains on child sexual abuse, in particular incest. And it's just amazing to me how few people know, and that's why Lynn's book is so groundbreaking, that the use of science or medical science um, continues. Now it's sort of psychological science. And there's a continuation in this pattern. Of uh, minimizing or ignoring or pushing away the fact that so many children are victims of incest. Yeah.
2: Um, That's right. So Either think, we, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a, it, it doesn't sort of matter, it hasn't mattered yet, let's put it that way, um, in terms of changing the mainstream, the dominant conversation on this, that every time there's evidence that comes up, then it is deflected in some way. So this time it's gonorrhea in girls, and that's deflected as, okay, now we're just going to instantly change medical knowledge. It's no longer an STD. Then we have the situation with Freud. So then orthodox ideas, Freud, uh, you know, women can't be believed. They're not really saying anything factual. They're saying their uh, fantasies. So, again, what women say occurred is deflected. So, this, this evidence keeps coming up in different ways, evidence of the occurrence of this abuse, but it is always explained away. Not among everybody, but in terms of the dominant uh, discourse.
1: You know, there's a lot of talk, and I don't know my history well enough, uh, but Margaret Sanger, I mean, she was uh, uh, viewed Uh as a heroine by some, and then, you know, she had some proclivities that, you know, brought her into disfavor in our current times, but but did she do any of her work? Was she strictly about reproduction, or did she also do some work with uh, the diseases and, and sexually transmitted diseases?
2: You know, I looked through some of her papers and some of her work, and I didn't find anything um, that addressed this. Um, So I haven't heard that about her. It it would seem it might come up. On the other hand, uh, she wasn't looking for it.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: The only only people who looked for it were sort of charitable workers and social workers who were really – there to identify bad fathers and bad men, um, you know, in the poorest of situations. This is all. This has been all about targeting marginalized men, socially marginalized men. Not really about helping children. Um, but they didn't see it anywhere else. And I think Margaret Sanger was strictly talking about uh, limiting reproduction.
1: Okay. All
2: right. Okay. Could
0: I ask a quick question? Sure, Um, absolutely. Yeah. My question was this. What you've done, Lynn, is a kind of um, really interesting medical history expose. mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what the reaction has been from people in the medical field, in public health, um, anyone who has, you know, a good knowledge of these issues. Has there been, you know, a lightning bolt that came down and struck them and they said, oh, my goodness, were we wrong? Now we better look at it differently. What what happened?
2: You know, before I started this research, I would have imagined that, but it it didn't happen, and I don't expect it to. Um, There has been an issue for a long time uh, among medical practitioners, you know, all all up and down the, the, the rank there, about how to deal with all kinds of abuse, you know, types of domestic abuse that can occur. And doctors are not eager uh, to enter that for various reasons, you know, some of which seem obvious, like they don't want to um, alienate a, a good patient, they don't want to get involved in lawyers, you know, that sort of thing. They don't want to decide, intrude into people's personal lives. Um, so no, uh, even though some, there's been some physicians who've looked at this issue, there's a lot of physicians and contemporary psychiatrists who write about
0: this, um, but I haven't noticed it. Have you seen it, Eileen? I haven't, you know, and I've sent reviews of your book to local doctors, you know, who are involved Mm -hmm. in child protection, and I've not had any response whatsoever. No, and my actually my
2: publisher, uh, the Johns Hopkins University Press I chose, in part because it, because it is the number one publisher of medical history in the country, and it also sells to practitioners. Um, they, they have a long line of medical books for practitioners, and uh, nothing happened.
1: Huh. So, so really, I would – well, okay, but let's back up. What, mm-hmm. what would you expect them to do in an ideal right. world? What would you expect – today's physicians to do about your book?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think that they know things they can do. I mean, they talk about how they will uh, um, discover that a girl has uh, an SPD, and then they might call it something else. So they don't want to report it. They don't want to get involved. It's not that they don't, quote, see these things in their practices. But in their defense, um, neither the economics of their practice nor the the sort of major consciousness in our society supports the the idea to help them believe that this might actually be happening. You know, the doctors that I in the healthcare uh, professionals I talk about in my book were some of the major uh, reformers and thinkers in the early 20th century these are these are people i admire many of them and you know i really became convinced as i was reading some of their papers that they just couldn't believe that quote good men would do this now not saying that just in a racialized way because that's certainly part of it if you were an african-american man if you were uh, any man of color if you were a poor white man every social bias in play went against you. Mm-hmm. But still, they just, they, you know, those, quote, those men, those social marginalized men could be uh, shunted to the side as they're poor, they're leading miserable lives because they're bad people. Um, yeah. But when you have people that appear to be upstanding Christian men, it's very difficult to accept that. It, you know, none of us want to think that. It's same as the idea of date rape, right? I yeah. mean, it's all of this idea that when when women make allegations of sexual misconduct, quote, we don't know what to do. So, it's not just the healthcare professions. It's It's all of our sort of professional knowledge is we acknowledge all these bad things are there, but nothing ever happens. I mean, the current discussion of rape on college campuses is sure not the first such discussion, is it?
1: No. No, it's not. Um, Okay. Um, Eileen, do you have something else you want to add? Um, Otherwise, I'm going to switch topics here for a second.
0: Um, Just to say thank you so much for having Lynn on, and um, I just personally highly recommend
1: this book. You know, I think... I think that we, what you say is, is really appropriate, and and again, I'm coming back to this whole idea that nothing, no comments whatsoever, no likes, no nothing on this topic just really struck me. Because to me, it's a, I mean, I know people who are victims of father-daughter incest, don't you? Mm-hmm. I suspect that sure. we all do, whether yeah. they talk a lot about it or not. It's part of us, and so, you know, I mean, are we just doing the turtle thing where we're just going to pull our heads inside our shells and pretend it doesn't exist because it's not pretty? Uh, I, to me, when you have these kinds of topics, in the first place, it's fascinating to look at the history, um, not just from a standpoint of what happened at that time, but how is that also impacting us? I mean, I just mm-hmm. uh, learned learned from you, Lynn, that, you know, something that happened 100 years ago you know, explains why I have the little tissue things in public restrooms. And, you know, and I know I've read studies saying that those little tissue things really don't do a thing. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, they're just kind of a waste of paper, really, from from a sanitation standpoint. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the we learn from our history. We learn from what happened in the past. And, and it astounds me that nobody, um, you know, really wants to grasp onto this. But it's not pretty. You know, people don't like no. not pretty things.
2: No. Um, and, you know, the present is not like a series of building blocks. It's more like strands in the double helix, you know, but they're all, like, wacky and out of shape and nothing's uniform and there's steps forward and steps back. And so there's all these processes, you know, that sort of keep converging in different ways. And, you know, it's like a marriage. It's one way in week one, it's another way in year 10, and it's still another way. But it's the same people. They're just in, you know, it's a process. So they're the same and they're a little different. And so for me, studying history is a way to figure out why we think about different ideas and things the way we do today. And I see a big difference between what I call our ideologies. You know, the idea one, the big one is anyone can be president. And yeah. absolutely, we've, we've had a lot of examples of anyone can be president. Um, Historically. But really believes, yeah, right. But nobody really believes that literally anyone can be president. <laughs> um, but yeah. it happens enough that it seems realistic. But often there's ideas that we maintain um, that we just what we call lived experience or sometimes they just call reality really conflicts with it. So the idea of, you know, one of the major social issues we've had the last, uh, I don't know, for a long time now is whether um, the United States should still have a social configuration built around the assumption that the nuclear family is the best, the best way for us to maintain our society and our culture. And uh, marriage and protection of the nuclear family, which presumed until recently a male-headed household, was considered key to keeping the country um, uh, stable and moving forward also to its governance. And it was uh, never really contested until recently. And even though now most people don't actually live in one male headed nuclear family their whole lives, we still say that's best, and yeah. the government still protects that, and that's still part of our public policy so when I see the scientists and the doctors unable to think about why these girls had gonorrhea, really, it would be like me saying to you today, Well, hey, I heard Arnold Schwarzenegger is preg- pregnant you know it just <laughs> seems that's not possible, right yeah, yeah not exactly possible. exactly yeah, yeah, and so. You know, uh, that's where we have part of the problem. But I think there's two big issues, and they're kind of related. And one is that women's authority still is not as highly regarded as male authority. Male. So what men say and how they view the world is still considered overall more important. Secondly, men are still considered overall more important. And so, uh, the you know, what's the big issue all the time? How is it? even phrased in a rape allegation, well, is this enough to ruin this guy's life, right? Not, oh, my gosh. uh,
1: You know, when they tell the victim, think about this, you could be ruining his life. Excuse me? You know? (laughs) Right. Right.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So we're always switching who the victim is, which is a way to, say, adjust the picture, so that we don't have to question our ideals, our ideologies, our beliefs, because we really don't want to have to do that. It is easier, so it's easier to believe that good men are always good than it is to say, well, okay, let's admit that a lot of men, for instance, molest their daughters, right? Even if we all agreed on that, then what? What do we do? How do we reorganize our society? How do we... You know, none of us even wants to think about how many men um, may commit what we refer to as date rape. How are we going to deal with the statistics on women who say they've been assaulted in their homes? And by the way, it's the girls who are sexually assaulted or generally assaulted in their homes by a father or a male father figure. Could be an uncle that comes all the time and sits. Could be a boyfriend um but they are that's where girls are most susceptible how do we so how do we restructure our lives? Um, I think that's really the almost impossible global warming when people go well, if we don't do something, the earth won't be here. Who could imagine that? and I think that's part of the problem we There are a lot of people imagining different ways to reorganize society, but nobody likes it when they're told that but The good news, I think, is, in fact, we have been and we are reorganizing our society. Uh, Women are the head of more households now, and it's more often by choice rather than, you know, I got divorced, I have six kids, no one else will marry me. Um, So there are differences um, from the past, and I often think that it's maybe how we actually live. You know, it's always a a friction whether we – Say when we pass a law, is it to prevent bad things from happening, or is it because we all agree something is bad and now we pass a law against it? Okay,
1: so that's a, that's a good distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some people think. Well, and yeah. and the other thing that we're we're kind of talking about, but we're not talking about. And I got to tell you, I am really, really cautious about throwing around terms like patriarchy. There are certain words mm-hmm. that just turn people off, and then they're not going to listen to anything mm-hmm. you say. You use them. Right. But. Um, I mean, let's face it, we're talking patriarchy here.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think if you ask most men, would you rather have been born a woman, they'll usually laugh, right? So Mm -hmm. we know that by things we can measure, income, number of women, uh, say CEOs at the Fortune 500, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously uh, women in Government, things like that we we see lots of examples where women remain as a group for the most part subordinated as a group to men yes it doesn't mean individual men you know, I talk about this with students every day. it doesn't mean individual men are screwing me intentionally, but as a right. group, they get better treatment. yeah that's yeah. the real issue, but I think there's some hope because I think that what it means to be a man is not only very vague and idealized, but it's been stagnant for a long time. So even though I could participate in women's liberation and I have benefited from it, my law school class of 100 had only 11 women in it. And those kinds of statistics are very changed now. Um, but, there, While there are improvements in society, it is still the fact that white males, in particular, dominate society. Um, you know, I saw a statistic recently, I think it was in the New York Times, that 75% of elected officials had been in fraternities. Now, that's not a conspiracy, you know. Are you
0: kidding me? Like, there's 75%? That's
2: true there. There's a way of being, and any woman that's gone into these primarily male spaces as, as one of the first or even the 200th knows what this feels like. Um, yeah. It's not anyone's, quote, fault any more than it's the way my Italian house smelled on Sundays when she was cooking her red sauce. <laughs> it's just the <laughs> way it is. But yes, as yeah. more and more men find that they're trapped into this cliche of what it means to be a man, what are the, you know when I ask them what to be, it means to be a man, they can't even say. And when they do say things like being a good guy and having integrity, I'm like, well, don't you want women to have that too? So right now, I think for women, in terms of things we can measure like jobs and salaries and, quote, you can have it all, young women can dream and sort of try to self-actualize as they want. There's no sort of legal barriers the way there used to be. But and so they could have, uh, they could be Sarah Palin, they could be Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton, they could be a full-time stay-at-home mom, um, they could be a nuclear physicist. It, it doesn't matter. All of those things now are deemed appropriate behavior for women, and they weren't before. But for guys, it's still the same old thing get married, have a family, and support them. And that's just, you know, individual men are not able to sort of expand in the ways they want. But I think that this is how that power stays there because all these guys are sort of trapped in these roles.
1: And I think you're right, and play. I think, you know, we, we were kind of talking about this off air. You know, I'm the mother mm-hmm. of an adult son, and, you mm-hmm. know, boy, you know, I mean, I grew up in a household with, I mean, even the dog and cat and bird were female. My dad yeah. was there, but my dad was the first feminist I ever knew. He was the only male child with eight sisters. Hmm. He yeah, had the right. most female feminist outlook. I mean, he was the manly man. He worked pouring iron, and he put guards together and stuff like that but he had a very feminist perspective in life and right. which i didn't really i mean i just took it for granted until i got older and went out in the world and saw wait a minute this guy is unique you know in the way he's perceiving yeah. things but well, having you he
2: that, he re, he respected and liked women would you say that well, And he
1: was willing to just let them be what what they wanted to be you know yeah. uh, but he, he didn't, didn't have or did he? expectations of what they were supposed to do for him yeah you know right. um but right. it was a, a, an eye opener for me to raise a son and i did yeah. see you know, some of the things that you're talking about when it comes to male and male role modeling, and, and it's a shame. And I think that, you know, it, it's a, it, I, we as human beings only have so much capacity to deal with so many issues at a time, I guess, which is why we we kind of focus on, you know, this issue or that issue before we move on to the next one. But it's a shame that, that in our efforts to enrich women's lives and, and, you know, provide opportunities for women, that we are not able to also at the same time look at what that means for men and men's roles and what you know what we can do to enrich their lives as well
2: but you know second wave feminism wanted a larger reach to really talk about reorganizing society in a lot of ways and that's been successful in many ways too but a lot of it has become more cultural feminism which is not about rethinking or critiquing society but but more focusing on individual women and their ability to have it all if they want. That's all fine. But for men, it's not the same thing. I mean, if a guy wants to be a nuclear physicist, there's nothing stopping him. Um, You know, in terms of his gender, uh, nobody's going to say, you know, oh, guys can't do this, only girls can do this. Um, So it looks weak for them to complain. I don't see where it right. Where they can ask for support of other men, they'd be like, "What are you complaining about?" Right? Well, you know there are, and, and
1: and and that's a, a good show. But you know there are some so many wonderful men's groups out there. Um, I mean, thinking of mm-hmm. Rob Oaken and um, uh, Male uh, Voice, Male Magazine, uh, V O I C E M A L E. I mean, there are organizations out huh. there that are working on these issues, but they're they're small. You know, and yeah. and uh, it, 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 you know so much of of what we as the citizenry are exposed to has to do with what media extends to us. Um, and so it kind of comes becomes uh, either you seek out information on your own or you have to just wait until, you know, the mass media deems it appropriate to start talking about it, <laughs> I think. That's
2: right. Um, That's right. Because, there, you know, a lot of women look for different kind of husbands. Um, than their parents. And a lot of those couples, like like you're talking about, have raised children differently now. So uh, there's a lot of individual men who may feel unhappiness or uh, who aspire to, say, be a stay-at-home dad because they've been really encouraged that they're great uh, caretakers with children. So as long as we've got people still trying, then eventually, you know, we just hope they lift a few more boats there, and eventually society starts changing. Historians yeah. always stay kind of uh, guardedly optimistic because no matter how bad something is, it will get better. And things yeah. change all yeah, You time. just have to the wait
1: change... long enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Some of us are getting along in the tooth. We can't afford to wait too much longer, okay? That's um, <laughs> right. But, you know,
2: but it's people that make the change. And so as long as a lot of people keep putting up a good fight and keep moving in whatever directions, you know, things change. Not always the way we want, but they change.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, let's get back to your book, Lynn. I I feel like we've kind of strayed a little bit, but it's been an interesting discussion. Um, Mm -hmm. um, First of all, your book is available, Unspeakable, Father-Daughter Incest in American History. Um, fascinating read it absolutely is fascinating Um, not only from an historical perspective and a feminist perspective but also from just a gosh this is interesting kind of perspective so I know it's a difficult topic I do, I know it's a difficult topic but you know there's a lot of difficult topics out there and that doesn't mean we shouldn't know about them or that we're not enriched by, by learning more about them Lynn, what do you hope that your book can accomplish for today's Victims. Do you think it would be helpful to, to victims, or are you looking at it strictly from the point of a historian?
2: No. Oh, no. I'm looking at, number one, from the point of victims. I want them to read a book that affirms their experiences, and not just their experience of being assaulted, but their experience of not being believed, the attacks that they've suffered on their credibility, um, uh, the issues they may have had with their families, um, and the lack of what I would call existential affirmation for them. I think that's just horrible. Um, the second is for people who were legitimately um, puzzled and unable to reach decisions in the psychological debates that went on. And I really wanted my book to uh, to reach those people because I'm trying to make a good faith effort here to parse through Um why we think about incest the way we do now and maybe that's one reason why it's so hard for us to believe it occurs.
1: Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is is that yeah okay you looked at this particular period in history and and pointed out you know the difficulties and the lack of recognition and the lack of acknowledgement mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff but are you saying mm-hmm. that we're still seeing that today?
2: Well uh I don't have any reason to think we're not because nothing has changed in terms of believing women and their sexual allegations. Now, lots of people will say, yes, they have. All these boys are being accused wrongfully of rape at colleges. But, um, no, in the long term, that's not standing up. We're seeing another backlash there. So, uh, no, what will change is once we really start thinking about um, men and why would a man feel a need to exert power over a child at the threat of gunpoint with a knife to their throat. Some of the men I studied um, lined up everyone in the family and told the girl they were about to rape, if you tell anyone, I'll kill all of them. Yeah. So What's
1: what, what, very common. What yeah. is
2: going on with men that, that, that this is not only what they need, but that they view their girls as so insignificant, as really not human. Uh, they are just objects. And these men, you know, Lynn, years often... and
1: years and years ago, um, I did mm-hmm. pre-sentence reports for a county here in Washington, mm-hmm. and um, we had some training on um, uh, sexual assault, and you know, even though I worked with misdemeanants, you know, um, but one of the comments that stuck with me that we got from one of the trainers, I don't remember who he was, but he always said that the only difference between an incest perpetrator and any other pedophile is that he's too lazy to go out and seek a victim. He has to grow his own. No. Um, mm. then, uh thank you so much for being with us. I'm looking at our clock and going, oh, my gosh, uh, where did the time go? I would like to invite you back again. I know you're working on a new project, and I really want to talk about that. So will you come back again and join us?
2: I'd love to. It's great talking to you, Heather.
1: Great. Uh, so Eileen, now. I know you're still hanging on the line. I'm sorry we didn't get back to you, but thank you for calling in. Thank you for recommending Lynn as a guest. This has been a wonderful show. Thanks thank you to both of you. <laughs> thank to both of you. I always end our show with a quote, and um, the quote that I have for today is, Incest is rape by extortion, thus the child's very childhood becomes a weapon used to control her. And that's a quote from E. Sue Bloom, mm-hmm. uh, author of *Secret Survivors*. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's an important topic. I hope the book um, *Unspeakable: Father-Daughter Incest in American History*. Thank you so much. Join us next week. On- bye bye.